Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. This episode is a very special one-on-one chat between Patrick McCartney and his old pal, Adam McKay. Adam and Pat spent uh, time together in Chicago in the 90s. They're going to talk about that. They're going to talk about Adam's time at Saturday Night Live, where he was head writer for a number of years before becoming a filmmaker, making movies such as Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Step Brothers, The Other Guys, The Big Short, Vice, and the newly released Don't Look Up, starring Jennifer Lawrence, Leo DiCaprio, and scrappy newcomer Meryl Streep. McCartney and McKay are going to talk about the times when they were scrappy newcomers. They're also going to chart Adam's course from being an improvisational student to an Academy Award winning screenwriter and big budget Hollywood movie director. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very special one-on-one McCartney and McKay on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. The following podcast is in no way related to Centralia, Pennsylvania. And now, direct from New York City, an island off the coast of America, it's the Centralia Improvisational Podcast. Mr. McCartney... Mr. McKay, how are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. It's we've been back in the office for a couple of weeks. It's holy shit. Like, I mean, you have the same thing. I guess you've been doing a little teaching outside, but it's so bizarre being inside for a year and a half. Yeah, you guys just got back in your office uh, three weeks ago. Wow. Yeah, three weeks ago. Yeah. Well, we have to get everyone tested. Yeah, you know, yeah, everyone's so you got to go through a whole protocol thing of a Jake. So the movie, the movie, I was lucky enough to see a cut of it, and I've known you for a long time, and I've always just been like, of course, that's McKay, of course, everything you've done, but this one was like a different level of, holy moly, I can't believe I know the mind that made this movie. Don't look up is the movie. And it is astounding on every level. Well, I mean, that is incredible to hear from you. Obviously, you and I have been friends for a long time. And I always value your opinion tremendously. So uh, I appreciated you taking such an early look at it because, you know, when people ask me to describe it, I just say it's wild <laughs> i just always say it's not what you think it is yeah um, and uh so to get that response from you was really great and uh yeah it's been like no other experience i've ever had uh I, the responses i imagine the responses to vice the movie you did about dick cheney were were tricky what have the responses been like so far to this one don't look up Well, yeah, the responses to Vice, I was just, you know, I obviously wrote the end of that movie like an elegy to America. You know, it was like, to me, it was like, oh, we're coming undone. And what surprised me was to see a lot of people that were like, not with that. That were like, we're taking it more like the ending, like, wasn't clever or subtle enough. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not supposed to be like we're in kind of the fall of this kind of thing. So that was one of those cases where it was like, Hey, you're with me. Right. And you turn around and there's only three people (laughs) behind you, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but that's not true. Actually. There were a lot of people that really liked that movie. And there were a lot of people that, that hated it as well, but um, which is fine. Uh, So this one is very different. This one is much more of an emotional thing and we've done some early kind of long lead screenings. Just We just started doing them. And it's funny because I had one reaction from a, a woman who uh, emailed me and said she was so emotional afterwards. She got in her car and backed her car into a pole uh, because she was so <laughs> emotional afterwards. And then emailed me the next day and said she couldn't sleep the whole night. So I got that reaction. But then I've gotten the reaction of someone else was just like, it was hilarious. Uh, I, li- I love this actor, but this other actor, I didn't think they were as good. Like, that wow, was the reaction. Yeah. So, like, 
So, but you know, that's kind of the way movies go. You know, everyone kind of has their own thing with it. So, but this one, it's like it's like the it's so much of an experience. Like it is, it is punch you in the gut funny. It is punch you in the gut uh, uh, dark. It is, it is like it just it bowls it bowled me over with just like this is a transcend. This movie transcends. I feel like it transcends. Um, almost everything I've seen of yours so far. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I think what's crazy about it and you lived through it. I lived through it. We were in touch while it was happening is that, you know, it's a movie that I think everyone knows is about the end of the world. And I wrote it. And then three months later, we're scouting it and the pandemic hits. But then on top of that, like, what was it? Seven months later, eight months later, people attack the Capitol. And then like five months later, (laughs) the climate crisis becomes activated. Like the climate crisis isn't just like readouts and droughts and some hot days. All of a sudden there's like raging fires and floods and, you know, 20 inches of rain. And so that's I I've never I, I mean this is we're just living in a time where it's it's actually happening you know every generation thinks something crazy is going to happen every generation becomes you know obsessed with some sort of conspiracy or crazy thing I was reading the great Mort Saul just passed away oh, and yeah. it, it, I know he's 94 years old wow yeah. it's like he had a good long run mm-hmm. and his thing he got into was of course the Kennedy assassination and you know, the conspiracies around it. And there there are some interesting facts about that that are pretty strange. But I was thinking, like, no generation has had what we're staring at, which is, like, a scientific, empirical certainty that this is happening. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, like, there almost couldn't be anything else I've ever worked on or we've ever worked on that that would be like this just because this time has never happened. I mean, it's it's fucking mind blowing yeah. it's it's hilarious and unsettling and beautiful and pornographic and <laughs> like it's yep. it's fuck i mean am i allowed to curse yes, of course please. I, yeah yeah it's fucking insane it's, i mean and we're living through yeah. it it's just can you believe I me mean, mccartney i've known you forever yeah. like you know, we went to a Burger King on Thanksgiving Day and uh, as a joke, by the way, as a joke. And uh, like, can you believe this? It's just astounding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, holy fucking fucking shit. Right. So, yeah. So I sort of felt like with this movie like this one, I'm not there's always a little I mean, we all like to be cool and do our own thing and take risks and stuff. But there's always a little part of you. That's like, you know, you're aware of an audience. You kind of want to get good reviews. Like, you know, I, I think anyone, maybe Martin Scorsese doesn't give a shit or David Lynch. But, you know, we always care a little bit. And with this one, I just really made a very conscious effort to completely unplug from that and just try and make the movie that needed to be made. Yeah. And you made it. And you made it. Like, I, you know, I, Strange Love was... What came to mind um, when I was watching it and literally thinking this is better than Dr. Strangelove, which I suppose for, <laughs> for a generation of people, that was the satire. That was it. That was and it sort of extends out those themes. And then it and it's yeah, it's funnier. I, I don't want to keep um, telling you how incredible you are because you are. But this movie just blew me away. Um, so. Improv, 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 improvisation, improvisation, an art form as old as the Mycenaeans. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, where are you from? Are you from Worcester or from Pennsylvania? I was born actually in Denver, Colorado, but I moved when I was like three. Wow. So then I lived in Worcester until around fourth, fifth grade. And then I grew up outside Philadelphia. So I always kind of claim Worcester, Mass and Philly, but mostly Philly because then I went to college there as well. Right. Where'd you go to college? You went to? 
Temple Temple University, <laughs> one of the finest <laughs> institutions. Uh, I have the headphones on, so the bassy voice yes, sounds like yes, uh, Located in northern Philadelphia, a historic neighborhood. Uh, I went to Temple University, but I dropped out my senior yeah. year. And you know why I dropped out? Im- improv? Improvisation. Yeah. To pursue improvisation in Chicago. Uh, so I did not graduate, but that's where I went. Yeah, you came to Chicago, and I was... Uh, I had met Rick Roman, who is a friend of yours. You were, you, from what I understand it, and please fill it in, you and Paul F. Tompkins and Rick Roman were all a part of a scene in Philly. That is correct. Yeah, we lived on Juniper Street, right off of South Street, which is off of Broad Street in Philadelphia. And Paul F. Tompkins was roommates with uh, another comic, Rick Roman. Right. And a friend of ours, Jules McDonald, who's a rockabilly bass player, very funny horse carriage driver in Philadelphia. And she dated Rick I remember. And the three of them lived in the house right next door to me. And we all got to be friends. So what got you to Chicago? I'm always like, I don't know what got me to Chicago. I'm always like, I don't really know exactly. I mean, it was the second city and the idea of it. But to get up and move, what was your thing? the same as you it's like i mean here's the thing that's hard to imagine there's no internet right so you're you really are hearing things from other people and zines and magazines yeah. and television and that's kind of it so rick roman had left because he was doing stand-up in philly he was driving the horse carriages i did that for a little while with him And then he said, I'm going to Chicago. I'm going to do this thing called improvisation at this place called Second City. And I had sort of heard about it from a creative writing teacher my freshman year in college, very vaguely about this improvisation scene in Chicago. And then Rick came back, I'm going to say like two months later or three months later, and he was still going to go back to Chicago, but he's back for a little while. And he told me all about this scene and this teacher, Del Close, and this place called the I.O. Theater that he taught at. And he told me about Second City and how it works in Chicago and what it's like. And it was one of those things where I just asked him 40 questions, like, how does the improv work? Okay, so this is a workshop. And he's like, no, they do it in front of crowds. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, actual crowds. And there's this group and called Blue Velveeta, and they're kind of the famous improv group at IO and there's yeah. and I was like and and people show up and I just kept asking questions and at the end of like five hours of questions I was like that's it I'm going and I dropped out of college I sold a bunch of junk the most valuable was my comic book collection I did the like, same thing I sold my comic book collection yep I got uh I think I got around nine hundred dollars for wow. it which I was pretty happy that's good pretty happy yeah. with and bought a Chrysler New Yorker, this horrible car with shag carpeting in it, and did what you did, went to Chicago. And the night that I got in, Rick Roman took me to I.O. And it was at a pizza place called Papa Milano's. And we walked in, and there's like a 100 people jammed in this restaurant with these two groups performing, Blue Velveeta, and there was another one called Bouquet of Flesh. Yes, Brian Stack's group. Exactly. And they were both, it was astounding. It was like nothing I had ever seen. And I looked at Rick and I was like, you did not fucking lie. Like it was actually better than what he had told me. And then right away I got in Del Close's class and Del was exactly what Roman had told me, this old, you know, 50s beatnik. Welcome to my class, you know, the deep voice. And, uh, and it was incredible. It was life changing. Oh yeah, it, uh, improv changed so many of our lives. That first class. So you you went right into Dell's class, and how long did you study with Dell? You studied with him forever. You were on the family. You were uh, well. First of all, we should tell about Rick Roman. Who who? You, why don't you describe Rick, Adam? So Rick was this just no one like him. He was this hybrid comic actor performance artist who really really smart really absurdist smart sense of humor definitely a big influence on me and the people around him Mm. and 
he was, yeah, he's just like no one else. And um, he ended up being on our improv group, the victim's family. And, but the tragedy with Rick is that Rick died in a, he drove a taxi cab and he died in a car accident on Blackhawk Road in Chicago, right when the Upright Citizens Brigade week, it was the day of my birthday. And we had also gotten Critics' Choice in the reader, which for theater people from Chicago, that's like the big thing you're trying to get. Um, And it was on the exact same day that it was my birthday, we got Critics' Choice, and I got a call saying, I just heard Rick Roman's name on the news, and sadly, that was it. He passed away. I think he was, how old was he, 27? 28 years old. I thought he was 27. I think that's right. I remember seeing it in... So we, you had moved in. Yeah. So we were, we were roommates on Shakespeare street. And then by the time Rick died, you were at second city and I saw it. Maybe there was this weird bar across the street on Shakespeare. Do you remember that place? It was like this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was there yeah. and I saw his picture on the TV. Uh, awful. But yes, awful. you're right. Nobody, nobody liked him. He was just, he was, he was. He was a force. He was, he would drive some people crazy. He would, you know, there'd be moments on stage where just, he would, you know, could electrify a crowd, would make jokes that no one else would make. Um, Yeah. There was no one like him. And uh, the good news is that he has a son. He has a son who lives in Philadelphia. I'm occasionally in touch with. That's great. And by the way, his son looks just like him. And his son has like an absurdist, sense of humor just like rick which kind of blows my mind wow so, um so it, it warms my heart that there is still and he's certainly an influence on a lot of people including myself so i always think rick does live on because oh for sure there's no no doubt that he played a major part in my life and your life and uh but yeah that my favorite thing is uh rick had gotten a place on wolcott and division yeah in uh what was the neighborhood it wasn't bucktown it was um oh shoot i'm trying to remember it was um uh it was wicker park wicker park which later became very gentrified but at that time was a little little edgy kind of dangerous neighborhood Mm -hmm. and uh pat mccartney you moved into our our closet yep i moved into the walk-in closet which wasn't bad by the way and it was a big apartment because it was a rough neighborhood I had a, the clothes were above my head while I was sleeping. I paid $120 <laughs> a month to live in that. And <laughs> I, I like to tell the story when you and I were watching TV, uh, Rick came out and just fucking bashed the thing. We were so excited. It was a big deal to have a TV. Oh, it was the best. We had found like an old, it was a black and white TV. Yes. We found, so this is probably around 91. Right. We had found a black and white TV in the garbage Uh and brought it and it worked. And we were just like, we got a freaking TV. And somehow Rick was on a trip about no media. I can't hear me. By the way, other days he would watch six hours of TV. But on this particular day, he decided there was no TV and came out and and was going to smash the TV. And I had to like stand up for the TV and yell back at him. And uh, so that that's Rick. I mean, God bless him for realizing media is, you know, clearly now in 2021 turns out. Yeah. That, that stuff did destroy democracy, but uh, at the same time, come on, give us a break. We're trying to watch F troop at two in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have like, I think we had like four channels and you just watch whatever you're given. Whatever's on is great. Do you remember the night we're watching the crappy black and white and all of a sudden right outside the window, we hear three gunshots and I hit hit the floor, reached up, turned the lights off like they do in the movies and pulled the shade back. And there's a dude standing out there with a gun, literally with smoke coming out of it. I didn't see the body. And the next morning, you see R.I.P. Shorty written on the wall. It was a gang stuff. It was Latin King stuff. The guy killed the guy. And then the police never called us as witnesses. We kept waiting for the call. And finally, I called one day. I don't know if you remember this. And I'm like, hey, we saw a shooter and no one ever talked to us. And they were like, oh, please give me your name and never called us. No follow up. Yeah. I remember the Latin Kings really 
owned that area for oh yeah during that time yeah, yeah. They didn't mess Remember with when us, we though, hitchhiked right? through Cabrini Green <laughs> 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 to get to Second City? Like we could have easily have walked, but we decided to easily. And then that nice lady gave us a ride. Oh my god! And she was terrified. She had her kid with yeah, her. I know, and she let us and in so, the car. For people that don't know, Cabrini Green uh, is projects in Chicago on Division, a uh, very dangerous area. And uh, Pat McCartney and I made the wise decision one night of let's just stick our thumbs out and see what happens. Sure. By, and this is by the 90s. No one's hitchhiking anywhere. No. We've all seen we've seen all the serial killer stories. And this <laughs> nice lady and her kid pick yes. us up and the woman's terrified the whole time. Yeah. And I think you and I said, like, why did you pick us <laughs> up? And we had a she had a pizza or we had a pizza. Yeah, I remember she food. Like, hey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was fine. We got out. We said thank you, and and hopefully she never picked up another hitchhiker again for the rest of her life. God bless her. Uh, <laughs> I just remember it was so dark on those streets. It was like, it was it was filled with adventure and um and a lot of possibility, but it was a lot of darkness, a lot of darkness. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's a cold, yes, cold gray mm -hmm. city and it's the Midwest. And also got, you know, I had a great time in Chicago, learned a lot, yeah. but the most segregated city ever. Yeah. That in Boston. Like, oh, for sure. Oh, Chicago. Yeah. Crazy. Like all the African-Americans on the South side, all the Mexicans yeah. on the what West side and all the white people on the North side. Yeah. And I had come from Philly, which is fairly integrated. And it was strange, man. It's like the, and I hope it's changed. I haven't been back in a while, but it was, it's a weird town, but the yeah. theater scene there was just, it was popping. It was incredible. There were interesting musical groups, theater groups everywhere. You could put up a show in the back of like a hardware store and a critic would show up and review you. And then of course you had that improv scene. And it was at that time, there was no improv scene like that anywhere else in the world, except for Chicago. And everyone came there for it. I mean, the list of people right. that were in that town, you could go on for 50, 60 names of like writers and directors and actors and Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Chris Farley and Mike Myers and Tim Meadows and Dave Koechner and Michael Shannon and on and on and yeah. on. Richard Maxwell right. and Gary Wilms and, and Theodore Ublack and, and Ken Vandermark Quartet. And it was just... The city yeah. was, it was cold and barren, but so creative. And the music scene, the music scene with Steve Albini and, and Naked Raygun and the Jesus Lizard. Oh. It was just a very alive and um, just a fucking kick-ass time. Ah, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And, and I got to know you yep. and Rick, and I felt like we were into you know uh, you turned me on to a lot of you were the one who turned me on to sonic youth yeah and then there was that band you remember frontier they were incredible oh yeah and remember, uh, devil bell yes that frontier. time we went to that i think i saw i'm going off on but i saw um gg allen i think at that same theater we saw devil bell hippies like on milwaukee and something that hot house flower i think it was called hot hot is that what it was called? There was a space on Milwaukee. There's a couple spaces around there. Maybe I'm a little confused. There was yeah. like four spaces yeah. around in the five corners section of Wicker Park. And it was burritos. Uh, burritos every night. Just burritos, burritos. Oh, burritos. every night. They were gigantic burritos oh. that cost like $3. <laughs> they were probably like 1,700 calories. Mm. You just ate one of those yeah. and then... Every corner in Chicago, there was a bar. Oh, yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, yeah. I was talking in the show I did that you're a, uh, your wife directed. Um, I I talk about how it was great for an upstart, a young alcoholic. <laughs> it's just a great town to fucking get professional. Become a professional. Well, it turns everyone into like when we all moved to New York. People were like Keckner, myself, Giannis, and you. Like yeah. everyone was like, you guys drink a lot, and we realized like, oh, that was Chicago. Yeah. People don't drink like this elsewhere. No. And uh, but yeah, there's bars everywhere because it's freezing, yep. 
And so you go into these warm taverns and old style was this like heavy beer. Mm. But I think we used to drink like Rolling Rock before it was like popular. And uh, there were so many bars and so many bands, so many theater groups, so many improv groups, so much art. There was, oh, also there was the uh, New Criminals were going on at that time too. You had... uh, uh, John Cusack and uh, Jeremy Piven with Tim Robbins directing mm-hmm. them and Bill Cusack. You had, there were so many different cool, interesting groups. Jim O'Rourke was a big yeah. musician at that time, later joined Sonic yeah, yeah. Youth. He was a big Chicago musician. Um, yeah, it was exciting. I, I talked to a friend of mine from New York who was in New York during the late 80s, early 90s. And he he reminded me like, that was also that time in the world. I mean, there mm. was just, that was an incredibly creative time. Like hip hop was blowing up and it's a lot of interesting authors and the the 80s into the early 90s were just an exciting time. But definitely Chicago had a unique scene going on. There's no question about it. Yeah, New York had like Karen Finley and a lot of really cool stuff like that uh, and, and Magnuson, Joe Coleman, Joe Coleman. Yeah. yeah, and Magnuson, who I've gotten to know out here actually, which is always so cool. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and John Lurie, we, we yeah. do a show with John Lurie too. Oh, really? Um, What's the show with John Lurie? Yeah, it's called Painting with John. Oh, you guys do and, that show? Uh, yeah. Oh my god, yeah, that's our company. Hyper Object produces that, and we just were looking at cuts of the new season are starting to come in. There's going to be a second season. John Lurie was in a band called The Lounge Lizards, and he was also in, he was an actor in Down by Law with yep, and the uh, Sonic Youth original drummer, Richard Edson. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. And with Tom Waits and uh, yeah. Roberto Benini. Yeah. And he was in, oh, Stranger Than Paradise was the, oh, right. the original drummer. Yep. Yes, right, right, and right. A bunch of other movies. And he's since become a really successful visual artist. And he, paints now and uh so the show is he does these beautiful paintings and he tells stories from his incredible uh funny bizarre sometimes moving life and it's an oddly hypnotic kind of addictive show that we just love we can't believe it's on the air it's on hbo yeah i've been meaning to read his new biography um i can't remember what it's called but i've been it's been on my mind history of bones right and uh yeah there's great stories in it from those like early 80s like hanging out with basquiat kind of years in new york city back when the lower east side was truly legitimately dangerous yes Um, yes and john lurie was right in the middle of all of it but anyway that was the time that you and i were in chicago in that improv scene and it was there was nothing like it no so then you get hired by second city which is a big big deal at the time and you were there was like a transition in in the oh my god in the power uh structured second city they started bringing in it was I, i think my impression was like they didn't hire improvisers and then suddenly you're hired. Yeah, there was a, a lovely woman ran the theater for a lot of years, Joyce Sloan, right. who's fantastic, uh, since departed, yeah. but wonderful, wonderful lady. But I think there was like kind of this different view at Second City that they leaned a little more towards actors and didn't value the improv as much right. as some other places. And then a new guy took over, Kelly Leonard, and he sort of opened the floodgates to our our crowd of improvisers, people from I.O., people from, you know, different theaters. And that's when I think Dave Keckner was the first guy they hired. Right. And then a bunch of us started getting hired. And that was a big deal because up until that point, right. you really kind of it was really hard to make money doing what we were doing yeah we had to have a lot of hustle we had a lot of hustle a lot of telemarketing jobs yep uh moving furniture dressing up as batman for like a kid's birthday party uh Mm -hmm. you name it i did singing telegrams with matt walsh one time um and so the idea of making a little bit of money because i was just in the touring company to start with at Second City, doing what we were doing uh, was kind of mind-blowing. Um, 
And then all these cool people were getting hired there. So it was really fun. Yeah. Uh, Horatio Sands, you got hired, Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, uh, Kechner, Brian Stack, Miriam Tolan, yeah. who's one of the funniest people I've ever met, Absolutely. Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. So it was incredibly exciting. And, uh, and for the first time, I wasn't dangerously broke. Right. Are you, I remember when we were living in, on Shakespeare Street, at one point it was like, I, I noticed that suddenly it seemed like Adam was all in as far as getting a writing job. Like you were started writing a lot and you were, it was specific for, I think for the Ben Stiller show, like you started putting together a packet. So when I deal with young improvisers now or people new to it, I'm trying to help shape when that ambition takes over. And do you remember when that, when that hits you? Really? Really good question. I mean, certainly the first couple of years I'm in Chicago, I'm just doing what's in front of me. I'm just right. learning how to improvise, meeting people, starting to do some sketch, doing shows wherever I can. And, but, you know, I had done like a comedy show on like the college radio station my freshman year. I had done some stand up comedy in Philadelphia. Uh, so there was like, and then I, I always love sketch comedy, obviously grew up like you did watching Saturday Night Live and Kids in the Hall. So I'd always kind of thought about sketch comedy. And so it was about my third year in Chicago where Sharna Halpern, who ran the IO Theater with Dell, told me that she knew Andy Dick, who was on the Ben Stiller show. Right which had just had a really good first season. Oh, yeah. And it was really funny. And Bob Odenkirk was on it. Was Janine Garofalo on it too? I think she, she was, was on yeah. it. There was a bunch of really good people. And I said, wow, if I wrote a couple sketches, would he read them? And she said, yes, I can make that happen. And it was kind of mind blowing to me. And so I just, you know, I had written some sketches through the years and I wrote like a new one and then picked my other two best ones and wrote like a cover letter. And they called me back and they were like, you're hired. And I was like, excuse me? Wow. And and then like, the reason you probably don't know this is like 16 hours later, it was like, oh, this show's canceled. Forget it. Oh my God. And they, they canceled the Ben Stiller show. I had no idea you got hired for the Ben Stiller show. Yeah, yeah. Now, by the way, I don't know if that's 100% true. I'm hearing it through Sharna, through Andy Dick, who, as we know, is a, not the most reliable source. And, but that's what I was told. And, and then it was like the next day they're canceled. Wow. So I don't know whether that was hundred percent true or not, but that also was kind of good because it, it starts getting you used to the, mm. the long litany of disappointments that you'll, you'll meet when you're trying to right. act, write, direct, do anything like this. That's going to be a part of it. So on that point, I just kind of got back to it. And we were improvising with the family. We were doing Upright Citizens Brigade. We, you know, then eventually Second City came in. And then I think you're right. By the time I got at Second City, I realized I didn't really do impressions. I wasn't the best character guy. You are always much better at doing characters. And I realized it was going to probably be writing that was going to be the next thing. So I just started keeping it in mind a little bit more by the time hmm. I was at Second City. Uh, I remember when you had to audition for us now, working with you on your audition, working with you. And there was something about, was the dad, was there a dad thing? <laughs> <laughs> what was the thing yeah, with I the did. dad? I can't remember. So I did a passable Bill Clinton, which by the way, oh. probably 70% of the human population did a passable, you know, um, Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of talking about right, your right, throat. Right. So it wasn't, it wasn't good, but I, I wrote some decent jokes for it. I did a character that I had done at second city, who was this kind of unctuous guy that was okay. And then I didn't have a third thing. Right. So you and I came up with the joke that I was going to do my favorite celebrity in the world, which is my dad. Ah, yeah. And it was this kind of sweet setup oh, of like, yeah. you know, you could talk <laughs> about John Travolta or Mick Jagger, but to me, the greatest celebrity is my dad. And then I started doing this dad character <laughs> and, and he, 
he's like an asshole and he's trying to undermine my audition and he's trying to get cast and it's exactly the kind of bit you do for SNL if you don't want to get hired (laughs) it's way too clever but but I think I was respectable I don't think it was a bad audition and then I did the smartest thing ever which is as soon as I left the stage Lauren came up to shake my hand very politely Mm -hmm. when everyone would finish their audition and I said I'm also a writer and I handed him a packet of my right on that was the best move of my audition. Right on. At the, so when you're writing now, you know, at this point, like there's so many classes in how to write a sketch. Like the, the you know, the improv theater we came up in, there was no real how to write a sketch class, um, at least as far as I know. Maybe. No, there wasn't. So there what wasn't. was your approach to sketch when you're when you're writing sketch? Like how are you just trusting your instinct? What is your. Yeah, it's two things. I think it's number one. It's what I grew up watching, what I thought was funny. So around us, we're seeing Kids in the Hall. You're seeing SNL. You've watched SCTV, Monty Python. Uh, Then you're in Chicago, and there are some people doing some sketch. And then the biggest part of it was really doing improvisation because, as you know, what improvisation is really teaching you is how to write. That's really what it's doing. I mean, there's elements of acting there's elements of emotional tapping into emotions there's collaborative work like that's all a big part of improv as well but maybe i should say for me the big takeaway was it made me a much better writer a lot of the fundamentals of it yeah so then i found once i kind of developed my taste which you and I clearly shared a very common taste with with a few other people as well, mm-hmm. uh, like Rick Roman and Horatio Sands. There was kind of a group of us. And when that taste got developed, I then, through improvisation and all the performing we were doing, I had uh, a foundation of some skills to just write a sketch. So I bought, like, this cheap word processor. This is, once again, before Macs were commonplace, and we didn't have the money to buy one anyway. Right. And I wrote sort of these, like, I don't know how I came up with the length, but I was like, hey, nine, ten pages feels about right. And I wrote these sketches, and I wrote a couple that were a little shorter and just kind of wrote what I would want to see. I just did the old game of if I turned on the TV and I saw this sketch, Mm -hmm. I would laugh at this. And I remember what the sketch was. It was Tom Brokaw, who's a famous anchor from the time, had made the mistake of doing a fictional movie about a disaster. And the movie was playing and it was becoming apparent that it really felt like it was real. It was like a War of the Worlds thing. So the real time, so Tom Brokaw from the news was trying to break in to say, I, you know, I, I, I can't remember how Brokaw was. I apologize for doing this movie. It was ill-advised, but this is not true. There is not a... <laughs> a giant granite golem attacking planet Earth. And then they would go back to the movie and then the Tom Brokaw in the movie would be, I understand there's people saying this story is not true. It is true. And it became this kind of crazy sketch. And and that was the sketch that got me hired at Saturday Night Live. And then I was also hired at Conan O'Brien at the same time. I remember. And I I can't remember the exact details and jokes of the sketch, but that was the sketch. And heightening, heightening, heightening. That's the big take. Hi, you are 100% right. That is the key to pretty much everything artistically is heightening, heightening, heightening. And how you do it, the creative ways you do it, how far you go, how absurd you can get in in that case with comedy. But yes, all about heightening. And that's really what you and I were learning every day in Chicago Mm -hmm. with improvisation, whether it was the classes, whether it was teaching classes, whether it was performing. Uh, heightening is the engine of all of it, no doubt about it. So then you're a movie maker. You're just like, I'm going to make movies. <laughs> and you do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was SNL. God right. bless. So you Lauren start Michaels. out with the digital shorts, which I remember we shot. I wonder if there's still footage of those. You had those old Russian, Russian cameras. 
It was yeah. good memory. A Russian Super 8 camera. Yeah. And Pat, you are in several of the short films yeah. and you were in the opening and you're hilarious in them. And you, I filmed, this is definitely pre 9-11 because it's footage of you oh, and right. I yeah. throwing snowballs right. at jet planes yeah. as they take off yeah. at Newark Airport. Right. And boy, oh boy, you could not do that now. No, no, no. And, no. Uh, and it looks such that from the angle, they really were taking off over us. And it really looked like we were throwing snowballs at massive DC tents. <laughs> and we, I, I played. We were. We were. Yeah. And, uh, and I played a Jim O'Rourke song. Right. And I shot that original round of shorts yeah. in 16 mil. And they, they actually look gorgeous. We had some really good DPs. Yeah. And then the next year I switched over to digital shorts because they're cheaper. And by then I think Lorne Michaels knew that I wasn't exactly making short films that were going to be pop hits. They were pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. But through it, I got to learn how to uh, direct. I got to work with a crew, work with a DP, have a script supervisor. Mm -hmm. And for that, I am eternally grateful to uh, Lorne Michaels for letting me do it and for you for being in them and being hilarious as well as a bunch of other really interesting actors so that that was that was huge for me that was that was kind of life-changing yeah so you're doing the movies you become head writer of Saturday Night Live you meet Will Ferrell which is like a yep. partnership made in comedy heaven for yep. so many people and it just works when you met Will were you like this guy is gonna get my voice I, you know, I, the way we connected was that we were there, it was Keckner and myself, Tom Giannis, and, you know, we're Chicago improviser guys from the 90s who were kind of famous for always doing bits and always doing jokes and playing them very real. And some people found that very annoying in Chicago. Yeah. And some people found that annoying at SNL, but Farrell didn't. Mm. He started like gravitating towards our office. And he started joining in the bids. And, you know, when you first meet Farrell, he seems very straight-laced. He just seems like a straight man. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he starts doing the bits with us. And we're like, oh, shit, this is like the funniest motherfucker ever. Right. And, and that was it. That's how we connected. It wasn't actually through writing sketches. It was through doing bits and hanging around and realizing this guy who's from California, who's from the Groundlings. Like, we didn't really think of people from the right, Groundlings I remember. as doing... Yeah. They didn't really do bits like we did. Like, they were just different. They were tended to be more polished, really professional, funny as shit, mm -hmm. but just different. And Farrell was the guy from the Groundlings who did bits. And so that's how we got to be friends. Interesting. And then, and then eventually we're like... I think Farrell even said, like, hey, we keep doing bits and laughing shouldn't we write a sketch together and i was like oh yeah and the first one we wrote was neil diamond's storytellers <laughs> yeah which was uh a, an old show on vh1 where artists would tell the stories behind their songs <laughs> yeah. and then perform them and we did neil diamond and the stories behind all these delightful pop songs were incredibly dark yeah. and hideous <clears throat> And that was the first thing we wrote together. Oh, God, what a time that was. That was, uh, that was a great uh, run at SNL. And then you're a movie maker. So then you're, <laughs> so then you're shopping around. I remember that time and I remember seeing you quite a bit and sending you like stuff on Rod Sterling, always trying to figure out different ways to like change SNL, which of course, you know, probably is, it's, it is what it is. And when it works well, it's hilarious. Well, that was when I started really having, I mean, I always had fun at SNL, but when I really relaxed mm. was when I just like finally read the room. It was like, oh, yeah. it's Lorne Michaels' show. He created it. Because the initial impetus was like, we're going to change the show. Yeah. We're going to do this. And I'm sure Lorne's dealt with, you know, 150 people in their 20s with exactly that same drive right. but once i relaxed and really my last couple of years where i was doing the short films and just writing sketches then i really had a lot of fun there and kind of got what was in front of me farrell was very good he figured that out pretty quickly from the beginning mm. what how the show worked what the show's deal was and 
rightfully so, it was the the show was Lawrence. He's the guy who created it. And and yeah, and then I ended up getting to do the short films, getting to do sketches, and then started to take the leap into the film thing. And uh, yeah, it didn't go so well. We uh, Farrell and I wrote a script yeah. we couldn't get made. We wrote a second script, Anchorman, that we couldn't get made. Right. And I ended up doing a big rewrite with Farrell on this ridiculous movie where he was a grown man playing an elf. And we were like, how the fuck did this happen? Like, this did not go well. Yeah. And and I remember just Farrell and I being like, if we're going to do this elf movie, let's make it good. <laughs> and like, like, write the shit out of it. And, uh, and then from there, uh, Todd Phillips cast him in old school. I always give Todd Phillips credit. Mm. And then DreamWorks was like, wait a minute, what happened to that Anchorman script? Uh. And the producer was like, oh, oh, we let it go. And Steven Spielberg was like, what do you mean you let it go? Go get that kid back. Get that script. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta make, we gotta shoot that film right now. Um, that is how people talk in Hollywood. Really, they, they still talk pitch, <laughs> and like they're really far away. Wow, kid, I heard you wrote a hell of a picture. And um, Steven, and I like that, that Steven Spielberg talks like that. Yeah, my name's Stevie Spielberg. I'm making a little film called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. I heard you've got a picture too. Um, <laughs> Uh, everyone's undiscovered and working on their greatest work when you meet them in Hollywood. Mm. Hey, my name's Sylvester Stallone. I'm an up-and-coming actor from Philly. Will you read my script, Rocky? Um, and mm-hmm. uh, and so, anyway, <laughs> I'm only amusing myself now with this. Um, and so, yeah, off of Old School and then off of Elf, we finally, finally got to get the, the big big kids toys as we called them got to get the cameras and actually make a movie and you use i mean as everything that's out there about you as a filmmaker um it's always you know great to work with blah 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 but improv is part of the experience how huge part how do you how do you bring that to a film set and how do you try like with your first movie so anchorman is the first thing you direct and you just are so confident in improv. How do you negotiate that as a, as a filmmaker? I, you know, it, it, it was really something that kind of somewhat spontaneously happened. I mean, it happened when I was doing the short films, I started realizing as much as you plan and write, there's nothing like being on the set on the day seeing the actors in character in the wardrobe, the sets are built, the lighting's up and there's an energy and it's hard to completely approximate that when you're writing alone in your office or apartment. So that started coming about with the short films, but then on Anchorman, I mean, it was so exciting. And like we built this huge news station set and the, you know, you, you shot a a part for it, which is on uh, wake up Ron Burgundy. You can see uh, Pat McCartney as one of the weekend anchormen. Mm -hmm. And um, the joke being, of course, they throw the, the odd anchor people onto the weekends. It's actually a very funny bit. And, um, and so, yeah, so uh, it just naturally happened. And then you've got Will Ferrell and Steve Carell. You've got these incredible improvisers and Dave Kector and Applegate. And uh, and so you're just like, you get the take and they nail it. And how can you not say, hey, why not try this? Right. And the more we started doing it, it was just really enjoyable. And we started building it into the schedule and doing it more and more. And I started throwing out lines and the actors started trying stuff. And then like one day I was like, Hey, remember you guys were going to sing afternoon delight. Do you think you can have that ready on that scripted scene we have, even though we're not planning for it. And Farrell looked at me like, what are you talking about? It's a four part harmony. I was like, Mm -hmm. well, can we get you with a musical coach? Cause I want to do one version where we get that. And then all of a sudden we started doing like different versions and it was our first movie, so it did become a lot. It got a little chaotic. Mm-hmm. And I remember days where my AD would look at me like, what the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. And because we were doing so much of it. Um, mm. And then as we went along through the years, we got smarter about it. You started learning that like, oh, you don't really need to improvise in this scene. Mm. But this scene, on the other hand, there's a lot of meat on the bone. There's a lot of other things you could do. So we started getting a little more selective about it and learning how to control it a little bit more. Um, But yeah, Anchorman was the one where we, 
I don't want to say discovered the method because there's other directors that use it too, but kind of discovered our version of it, I would say, mm -hmm. um, and really kind of let it fly. And then the other big thing you get from it is not only are you improvising around these scenes and the actors are improvising, but it's also really fun. And so especially when you're doing a comedy, it creates an atmosphere with the crew, with the day players, with the extras, with everything where it's just got a, a buoyancy and an energy to it. So even the scripted stuff starts to get better. And you know this from being a, a, not only a great improviser, but an incredible uh, scripted actor as well, that you can improvise around scripted material. Mm -hmm. You can bring an extra life to it. And that was the other thing we really discovered with Anchorman is the scripted stuff got better the more we played around and improvised around it. When you work with uh, you know, the extraordinary actors that you get to work with, like Christian Bale or Meryl Streep, in this movie, don't look up. Um, do you ever have deal with actors that are like, I don't know about improv. I it's, uh, all the time. I oh, mean, really? my favorite one of all time is Richard Jenkins. Wow. Who just said on Step Brothers, I don't, I don't do that. I don't improvise. And I was like, I just said, Well, Richard, you're going to. <laughs> and, and guess what? He was incredible. Yeah. And so I oh, yeah. usually the people that tell you they can't do it are usually going to be the best. Always. Mary's, always. 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 And so the whole monologue at the end of Step Brothers, where he says, don't lose your dinosaur to Dale and Brennan for anyone who's seen it at the end of the movie. There's this monologue that's become, I've heard it quoted places. I wouldn't say it's famous, but it, it, it definitely landed great. Oh, yeah. We improvised that. I wow. said to Richard, I go, you know, you should probably give him a lesson here. I just said to him, I go, what if like when you were a kid, you acted like you were a dinosaur and then you were older, you stopped doing it. And it's kind of ridiculous, but it sort of has the spirit of childhood. And he sort of rolled his eyes at me and gave it a go. <laughs> and then we did another take. And I was like, what if you do this? And he goes, okay, I can try this. And we did one other take. Yeah. And then we moved on. And the first thing he said to me at the premiere was like, please tell me you didn't put that dinosaur monologue. In. I was like, oh yeah. I was like, Richard, it ends the movie. So wow. yeah, everyone could do it. All you got to do is get over caring about being perfect with every word you say. Right. And then the other thing is everyone knows is don't deny the reality, play your character real in the scene mm -hmm. for the style of the movie. Yep. And then don't sweat it. If something sucks, yep. because we're going to edit it in the end. And that's kind of the same spirit as doing it on stage too. Like, Play your character, play it real, play it smart. Even if it's a dumb scene, play mm -hmm. it smart. And don't uh, worry about fucking up. And let's go. And it's amazing. Uh, Meryl Streep, on the other hand, was just instantly one of the best improvisers I've ever seen in my life. Wow. With no prompting whatsoever. Yeah. One of the first scenes I did with her, she ended up improvising part of this whole speech the next thing, she was on the phone at the beginning of a scene and improvised 20 different phone calls, and each one of them was brilliant. Holy shite. And, and I'm like, where did this come from? And I'm talking to Jonah Hill, who can certainly yes. improvise. And both, both of us are looking at each other like, I did not know this was out there. <laughs> where did it come from? Did she take like a one, one class and just master it completely? I asked her uh, exactly that, and it's, I think she's just, you know, when people's instincts are that good yeah. and they're that well-trained and they're that smart and that collaborative, mm -hmm. and I'm sure through all the movies she's done, she's had room to improvise. She is a trained actress, so the way she I never really got, I never really got a straight answer. I kept saying, like, no, but for real. Where did this come from? And she'd be like, oh, I'm just playing around. And I was like, and then like an hour later, I'd be like, hey, seriously, have you ever taken an improv class? And I don't know if she ever answered me, but I'm not kidding. Like breathtakingly. Good. The way she exhales for cigarette, that movie. Oh, is like it's it's grotesque. It's grotesque. Yeah. She, she makes a sound yes. when her aide lights her cigarette. That yeah, that, yeah, that yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like you're waiting to smoke your cigarette. I mean, and by just the most collaborative, generous person oh, you've ever met in beautiful. your life. Uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because you're watching. You know, I mean, to rank people is stupid, but just for the sake of it, yeah. you could argue the greatest film actor or actress ever. And you realize she's just pure light 
collaboration mm. and joy. And it's like, what are the great things I got to see? Because it was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That that person is doing it in that way. Mm. And they're not some diva maniac who's like throwing stuff around set. Just uh, you would love her. You would love her. And you would hit it off with her right away. She's just so open and uh, yeah, it, it, one of the great joys and the fact that she's a killer improviser. Just never saw it coming. Wow. Uh, to that degree, I knew she'd be good. Yeah. Like, what are the three big takeaways you got from studying with Dell? You know, the biggest one was the third thought. That was really, I mean, because you remember, like, yeah, you know, he wasn't that's funny. He wasn't screwing around with that. Like, he really made you stay on stage. Could you tell people exactly what that means? So Dell used to, you'd be on stage improvising in a scene and you'd say a line in the scene and he'd go, stop, stop, stop. You'd go, what the hell was that? And he would make you take your time on stage to push past your first thought, your first instinctual, I'm just going to say what comes off the top of my head. And then he would make you find your second thought, go to a better line than that for the scene. So you'd go, okay. And you'd think for a bit and you'd come up with a second line and then he'd go, now let's go to your third thought. And that was really, everyone talks about the yes and, and the play at the top of your intelligence and the specificity and all the great things that Dell came up with and developed. But for me, his breakthrough thing was the third thought, mm. that you stay on stage till you get to the third thought. And that was the biggest thing. That was the breakthrough. And then, you know, the idea that you play to your audience always at the top of your intelligence because... There's a lot of people in entertainment who are just like, give them what they want, yeah, kid. Yeah. And and that Dell wasn't just saying it. He was adamant about it, and he demanded it. And then for us to get to see that that actually works better uh, was a huge breakthrough, especially I come from stand-up comedy. And to have a guy say, no, no, do it as smart and as well as you can, mm. even if you're playing dumb, even if you're playing silly, always do it as creatively and as inspired as you can, and then to see that work. That was a big breakthrough for me as well. Um, I learned a lot from Dell, but those two really stick out. Uh, third thought, play at your absolute best at all times, and the audience will respond as the best audience. What is a piece of art you've seen recently that have you that you're not involved with that has really inspired you? Music, it could be music. You know what? I took a weird stroll through electronica music. Yeah. And I didn't know that, like, oh, duh, like, a lot of the most creative people, uh, a lot of the most interesting music is happening in electronica. So I just did one of those, you know how you do it with music, where you do, like, a deep dive yeah. that lasts for hours and hours? Yeah. And I found this Russian electronica artist that was just, like, thrilling. And her name is Kate, I think it's Kate and V. Uh, yeah, Kate NV with a K. And I just got really excited. Then I found this guy, Theo Parrish, who's doing all this really cool stuff. And I found this other electronic artist, Elania, E-L-A-E-N-I-A. And it was just, you know, it's when you have that thing where you open up a door and there's like a whole other world. Yeah. I mean, certainly I've listened to electronic music through the years. Not like I'm oblivious to it, mm -hmm. but I just had no idea there was this kind of stuff going on in there. So that was pretty exciting. That was really cool. And then just on a much more casual level, I just got hooked to that show, the French show, The Bureau. Oh. Uh, with, holy crap. I haven't seen it. Uh, it's good. Oh, you're going to love oh, good. it. It's so good. Oh. Yeah, really good actors, slow, psychological, oh, yeah. uh, incredibly addictive. So, uh, And then, of course, Squid Games. I yeah. thought it was just tremendously exciting yes. to see that kind of class commentary yes. with that kind of dark playfulness to it. I just was like, I I'm loving this labor movement that's really starting to pop up, yes. this class awareness. So, yeah, those are some of the things that got me excited lately. How's your heart? My heart is good, man. And thank you for asking. For those who don't know, I had a heart attack around three years ago, right after finishing the story of Dick Cheney. Oh, the irony. And mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, I'm okay. I uh, I got a lot healthier. Um, I've dropped about 30 pounds. Good for you. I'm eating much better. Do not smoke regularly. I'm not going to lie. Occasionally, I 
go behind a car and have two puffs of a cigarette, mm. which I shouldn't do. But uh, overall, much, much healthier, doing really well. Good. And uh, everyone's good. How is, uh, how's your health? How's your family? How's New York City? New York City's great. My health is good. And I just saw my dad last weekend and he was, he was good. I love it. Please love to your dad. Love to your brother, Michael. Um, and uh, always a huge fan of your dad. And for those people that don't know, uh, uh, Leighton McCartney, Pat's dad, hell of a writer. Yeah. Uh, has written some really good stuff, historical writing, some some journalistic writing. Uh, yeah, really fascinating guy with one of the great voices of all time. Mm, he's a brilliant man. I'm, and your dad. I mean, your dad. How's your dad? My dad's great. Fred McKay, a bass player, plays upright bass. Yes. He's always in about four or five different bands. Uh, I love it. The guy's in his 70s, and he was in a <laughs> Grateful Dead cover band like two years ago. Plays uh, in Irish bands, plays dad. Zydeco. Uh, he's great. He's doing wonderfully. All right, Adam, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I love you, brother, and uh, and I hope uh, I hope I get to see you soon. You will. I'll be out in New York. I love you too, my friend. And thank you for having me. There you have it. That was our one-on-one McCartney and McKay. Adam's new movie, Don't Look Up, is out now in theaters and on the Netflix. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it directly on our page on anchor.com. FM. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, we are Centralia Improvisation at thegmail.com. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It might be Gmail. You can also find us on the Instagram and the Facebooks. Be sure to like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on the Centralia Improvisational Podcast.